I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show so many so many so many damn books i hope i hope that's what you were doing uh i'm christopher i'm drew and this is so many damn books as we song. <laughs> anyway, this is our first episode. First episode that we've ever recorded. Woo, that's totally true. And uh, we're broadcasting from Dr. Doctor's studio in Brooklyn. Beautiful. Beautiful studio. Yeah. Yeah. I like the twinkle lights in the corner. Yeah. It's ambiance. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, owl ambiance. Owl ambiance. Which feels uh, fitting. The pun, not so much. Uh, <laughs> Oh, I tried to I tried to fit the pun. <laughs> uh but uh so let's start this off, uh Drusif, with uh with the story of how we met because I think that that is a Oh it's good, good place context. To, yeah, yeah, it's good context. So uh the morningnews.org um hallowed be thy name. <laughs> <laughs> Hi guys. Uh they uh they have a wonderful thing that they've been doing ten years now. Um, Indeed. Almost 11. Almost 11. Called the Tournament of Books on their website where they uh, choose 16 books and sometimes a little more and they uh, play them out in March during March Madness. It's excellent. It's It's good fun. It's great. It's nerdy March Madness. It is the most nerdy. And it was the first of those like because now there's a bunch of the brachiology. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Nate Silver, that whole thing. and. Yeah, and, and like Hulu tried to jump on with like the, oh yeah, the best forgot sitcom. about that. Yeah, anyway, that's dumb. so we fuck uh, you, Hulu. <laughs> that's really gonna mess with our <laughs> advertiser strategy. Our sponsors. <laughs> None of this is usable. This year, you and I met in the comments. Yeah, we, we. I don't remember exactly what book we were talking about, but it was one of those things where there was someone in the comments who kept saying what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, and then at some point we were both like, we put together that we were both in New York before they announced the big like tenth anniversary. We're gonna do a party at Housing Works, and it's gonna be great. And then we were like, you go to that party? Like, all right, cool. So uh, we met at the party. Uh, Drew was dressed as a rooster. I was indeed slightly like a like a stylish. Uh, yeah, like a rooster not... that had been turned into a man by a witch. Yeah. Which... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it... I was mostly wearing normal clothing and then like also a red ascot and a little coxcomb. So yeah, if you, if you had s- were watching the movie, you would have known yeah. like, that he had been turned into from a ro- rooster. Yeah. yeah, 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 the Disney animated feature. Exactly. <laughs> live action feature. <laughs> <laughs> the live action adaptation of Chicken Run. Yeah, uh, nice. Um, Is there a witch in that? 
Also, wait, I don't think that was a Disney movie. Yeah, it was. I think it was Disney Animation Night. I thought it was DreamWorks. Uh-uh. I thought Chicken Little was the one that Disney did. It's all right. I think we should probably end. Yeah, I think probably. That's, that's, it. that's it. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> so, so we met there, and we, after realizing that both of us read more books than is um, recommended by a doctor, yeah, uh, we uh, we uh, realized that we should probably do something with all of this arcane knowledge, right? Yeah, and that means inflicted upon you, dear <laughs> listeners. Yeah, thanks for downloading. <laughs> So yeah, so I think we should start with what what everyone starts with, which is the classics, and uh, this is just a little feature of uh, classics revisited. Yeah. Um, and so, do you have a what? What's a? It's October. It what, is. What and, are uh, you going to be revisiting? What should what should people be reading this month? I mean, it, you know, it's seasonally appropriate, but also um, the answer is Dracula. I think I haven't read that book since I was in like seventh grade. And I remember okay. the time or what? I just feel like it's like really long, right? Not, I mean, not like super long. It's like 600 pages. I'm not, I, this is just, I'm just trying to say like the price of admission is really high here because it's like high Victorian Gothic drama. It right? is. And it's like epistolary too. So for a large part, it's just like letters about people like writing to like, Oh, I'm heading to Transylvania. How exciting is that? Okay. Dear Jonathan, that's very exciting. <laughs> so, okay. So when you're reading the book, like when are you looking for it to pick up? Like when, when does it like become the Dracula we know? I mean, some, or does I, it ever, as I recall, it happens maybe a third of the way in. Like the first third is, it's okay. This is yeah. Stodgy Victorian stuff. And then, uh, the, something happens where all of a sudden he's a, arrived at the castle and you're like, what's going on? Like, why is this? And then all of a sudden he like sees him climbing up a wall or something, as mm-hmm. I recall it. And you're like, whoa, okay, some shit's happening now. And then it and just, then it's it, Dracula. It, but it like, it also stays at that place for a while. Okay. And like, as I recall, the, the final act sort of happens off stage and then they're like writing about it afterwards, which is a great lesson for writers. Like, Hey, uh, put your climax in the book. Yeah. Show, <laughs> show, do not tell. Yeah. Shakespeare um, could also use that note sometimes. Um, yeah, good. If we're going to be bold about this, just <laughs> go right out. No uh, sacred cows here. One of the, one of the two things that I, you know, know from just a uh, weird knowledge of Dracula is just that he turned into a wolf, right? At one point in yep. the book. So he sort of can turn into animals, plural, not just bats. Yeah. Creepy and animals. The other one is that there's no, there's none of this weird vampires have to be invited in thing yet. No, some of the stuff is there. Like, he's asleep at night and sunlight and all that stuff. And he, like, travels by, like, a completely blacked out coach. Uh-huh. Um, and they... St- so, wait, the light the light thing is the in there? The light thing is there. Steaks are in there. Huh. Um, I forget if garlic's in there or not. Does he re- Garlic it, is a terrifying spice. So... That's what my girlfriend says. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... Uh, so, read Dracula. Yeah, uh, but all right, what are you, what's... I'm going to go uh, 180, 300, a full 270 degrees. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, to uh, Mary Poppins by P.L. Travers. Oh. Uh, I was inspired to read the book because uh, of the wonderful movie, uh, the, the Saving Mr. Banks, Mr. Banks which was so, which is like a very strange movie to me. When I was watching that, I felt like we're weirdly supposed to side with Disney that... <laughs> That P.L. Travers is like 
withholding cold school mom, <laughs> and she should really just give Disney the the rights. But I was watching it, thinking like, no, like don't don't give it to him, Trevor. <laughs> Knowing how it ends too, but the, so yeah, I, yeah. I thought like, what is this book that, and it, and it is, it was, it is so odd. It's so much stranger than the movie and the movie is already very odd, but it's so much stranger than that. Like one of the, one of the great things about Mary Poppins is how incredibly and absolutely vain she is. She's always making really? the children late to to um, appointments because she's like caught herself in the mirror on the way someplace <laughs> and she's just like, wow, I really am beautiful. Like, aren't I something children? <laughs> and she also just hates birds. Like, I don't know what it is about birds, but in many, many of the chapters, which are more like short stories, um, that she'll just see a bird and she'll be like, damn sky beast. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like, is it because she's flying around with her umbrella and she's getting dive bombed by birds? No, they're not doing anything to her. (laughs) Is it because of the scene that I hate so much from the, the Disney feature with the feed the bird, you know? (gasps) Yeah, no, no, there's nothing. And that whole sequence isn't even a big deal. I imagine that must've come from a later novel, but, uh, it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a, it's so much more complex and, and strange than the movie made it seem. And it's, if you haven't ever read it as an adult, you'll just, it'll sort of boggle your mind that you're like, so the, this is a children's book. <laughs> this was, and I, I, I'm interested to read more, but it's a very strange thing. Nice. Yeah. So classics to revisit. Right there. It's always good. Um, but on the non-classic side of the world, we're stuck in dystopias, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it's the end of the world every day anymore. <laughs> as we know it. Yeah. Or as we don't. Sometimes as we don't. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, the whole dystopia thing, especially when there's seemingly more and more sort of blockbuster literary names taking mm-hmm. a stab at their dystopia, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, I feel like you said this to me at one point. We we feel like we are as a culture at peak dystopia. Right. Like, this is the moment where it's like, yes, if you're gonna do it, do it now, now is the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it's also one of those strange things where, like, you would think the public would be tired of it by now, but the sales, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, I think if the, if the world outlook was better people might start getting tired of it but instead it's like oh let me read this so i can figure out how i might be able to survive yeah oh especially when you read something like california by eden lepucky when you and and then you look at the news and it's just like yeah now apparently california might be out of water in six months yeah so that's a horrifying thing that um it's a little close to home because i'm from california but also when you're reading that book it's it's just a little too real Right. Um, and and I, you do kind of feel like, well, maybe I need to put together a go bag. It's, you know, that whole, you see these ads on the, the bus stations here in New York that are like, do you have a disaster plan? I don't know. Do I need to have one? But I, yeah, the probably. answer is yes. But we read this week, both of us, this month, um, this time. <laughs> this time? Yeah. Um, we read, and again, topically for the news, uh, Emily Sinjin Mandel's station 11, Mm -hmm. um, which deals with, uh, an outbreak of a particularly virulent flu strain, which 
is very real. Uh, but you know, Station Eleven is is about a traveling uh, Shakespeare company and symphony, whose motto is um, because survival is insufficient. Yeah. And so they've been roaming this land for. How many years after the collapse are we in now? Like 20 I, or 30? I think we pick up... It's somewhere after 15 years. Right. Because 15 is a, is marked in an interview that happens with one of the characters. I think... Mm. I want to say it's close to 20. Yeah. So we're... So we're... So some some of the adults or like the, the young adults in the book have, have been born into the dystopia and have never known electricity. And like that is one of the most interesting parts of the book. But why yeah. don't you, um, before we go much further, why don't you give a little Yeah, here's a little sample. excerpt from um, about two-thirds of the way through the book. Mm. No spoilers, I promise. He'd known for a long time by then that the world's changes wouldn't be reversed, but still, the realization cast his memories in a sharper light. The last time I ate an ice cream cone in the park in the sunlight. The last time I danced in a club. The last time I saw a moving bus, the last time I boarded an airplane that hadn't been repurposed as living quarters, an airplane that actually took off, the last time I ate an orange. I mean, it's kind of a staggering thing to think about the things that we take for granted in the world today that could be gone just in a, in a flash. Um, I actually do this thing sometimes, uh, especially in a book like this also. Uh, with like C.S. Lewis and um, and the magician's nephew and and Lion the Witch in a Wardrobe, where he mentions like I haven't had an orange in a while, and I'm like, well, I can have an orange, <laughs> and I like go and spite the character and have an orange while I read it. I don't know if you and or like I have Turkish delight uh, along with. I try to anyway. Is this something that I go after? Is this something you do? I mean, I try to sometimes, if but not in like a spiteful way. <laughs> no, that's, yeah, that's no, really it's aggressive. Me against them. <laughs> You will do well in the future dystopia, my friend. Yeah. yeah. Or, oh, you know what? Ruth Ozeki, A, t- uh, a Tale for the Time Being. Uh, I, there's this part where he, they're, they're cutting fresh oysters off of the island oh, and eating yeah. it straight. And after I read that passage, um, I took my girlfriend and we went and had two dozen oysters together. <laughs> and it was beautiful. Especially because, like you, you can you have not only the taste of the food, but also like the description of their experience with it in your head while you eat it. And I think that that sort of creates a double. So go and eat an orange, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's weird for Station Eleven because at this point with dystopias, I mean we've read a lot now, mm-hmm. and so I was really, really unsure going into this thing how I would feel. Because it's another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had just read California. There's even some sort of connection there. Oh, yeah. I remember you texted me about this. Um, where both Eden Lepecky and um, Emily Senjin Mandel both work at The Millions. Mm-hmm. As, and they both write articles for them. And they both have a character named August, who I believe both of them, too, made them the same ethnicity in their yeah, books. Yeah, I think so. Or at least... Yeah. And so it makes me makes me wonder like they can't have not talked about this. They can't have not read a little bit of each other's books. So I wonder if they they asked you, they had just decided like, yeah, August <laughs> he's making his way through the end of the world <laughs> and he is okay. Anyway. Um so 
I think the reason why this one worked is because of the three distinct sections that she's sort of switching between. Mm -hmm. Because most dystopias, you see the end, especially like when you look, I'm going to just continue comparing it to California. Um, yeah, why not? Where uh, that one is is a little bit more traditional, where it's just like, it's after, it's pretty much takes place all afterwards. Right. There's some memories and flashbacks, but this one has literal action take place, um, you know, in the months and years leading up to the... Yeah, I would say almost half of the book really takes place pre... Pre-flu. Yeah. And also, for the people who are like picking it up to really get some tips on how to run their Shakespeare company <laughs> after the end of the world, you know, they're going to be a little disappointed because there's not a lot of Shakespeare in the book. For I was sort of surprised that there wasn't more about like how they put on a show, which I guess... I mean, maybe it was in an earlier draft and someone's like, there's a lot. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of this right now. <laughs> the most Shakespeare really takes place at the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not even the... Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll give a lovely shout out. At the end of the book, I remember getting to the end and seeing this and being very excited that um, the production of King Lear that starts the book where like an actor... I mean, this is not a spoiler. It's on the back, the right. flap copy. An actor keels over uh, and dies of a heart attack at the very beginning of the book on stage in King Lear. I don't know about you, but I personally that- thought, no, I personally oh. thought that that was like he had died of the super flu. Like, like I did I too. So, but like, no, this guy has, it's just, completely unrelated. To- <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he just- like he's the last person to die of natural causes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, but I the, the production of Lear is based on, I think the 2007 production that was done at my place of daily business, the public theater here in New mm. York, um, that Kevin Klein was in. And they like, she saw that production apparently and loved it and took elements of it and put it into this. But there's like, it's lovingly described as how the show starts and what they're doing backstage. And this moment where, during Lear's mad scene, he like sees the image of his three daughters as little girls and the little girls like run out onto the stage and then he kills over of a heart attack. Um, um, but that's you were the most Shakespeare me, in the thing. Can you, can you tell the listening public um, that awesome story about Kevin Klein? Oh, so, um, yeah, this is fun. Uh, Emily, if you're listening to this, I hope you, I hope you know that this was a thing that happened in that production. Um, he, during the mad scene in one of the performances, uh, just, you know, trying something out, getting, you know, been doing it for a while, was getting kind of bored. Um, and, and he, uh, relieved himself <laughs> in his costume and like, and, and the, he, I love that decision. I, I am so committed. I'm going to pee my pants. Yep. Then <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the like the stage manager report that went out, and this is long before I worked at the public. But like I've seen the and it's like, so this is what happened. Um, <laughs> we decided. Please, please wash Mr. Klein's costume tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bold bold move. Yeah, and you know I mean, is bold the word? <laughs> well, because then apparently he was like, I tried that and. Um, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. It's like, well, good for you. So there's this great detail in the book that uh, is is one of the big reasons I think you should just pick it up and read it is that there's a character that's put together this museum of civilization. And uh, he's put all sorts of things in there. I don't really want to give a lot of those details away because that was one of the joys of the book. It's mm-hmm. like kind of getting to what his museum has become. Yeah. Yeah. 20, 25 years later, whatever it is. At the yeah. Yeah. 
But that, I mean, it's that ties into that the marvelous quote from Star Trek Voyager: "Survival is insufficient." That idea that we surviving alone, like living from day to day, is actually not enough. Mm. You have to have something broadly cultural that is driving you forward in order to remember the past and perceive a possible future, which is why they're doing Shakespeare and the symphony, but then why this character Clark has created this museum. It's to remember, but then also to strive forward. One of the things that is poignant about dystopias is when you can sort of tell that the author is idealizing it in a mm-hmm. way. And um, Emily Sinjin Mandel, she actually skirts this pretty well, where she says, like, in some ways it's great, and in other ways it's terrible. But um, but she seems to she seems to think that there would be some really big bright moments of 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 a simpler life. Yeah, and I think you know that's it's a nice thing. It's yeah, because you know the world goes to hell, but then also survival we continue yeah on life will find a way <laughs> um so, so anyway so speaking of life finding a way and continuing what should people read this week other than dracula and mary poppins and Station Eleven. Station Eleven. Um, so many. I know. Damn. So many damn books. <laughs> um, my ding my <laughs> sponsors. Um, <laughs> my recommendation actually is it's not quite a dystopia book, but like a current. It's a collapse book, an economic collapse book. Okay. Uh, Jess Walters' The Financial Lives of the Poets, which came out couple of years ago, I think 2009. But they just did a very nice reissue on the Olive Yeah, press. the Harper Perennial Olive Editions. It's mm-hmm. very pretty. It's $10. It fits in your back pocket. I love that. Harper, please send me the rest of them because I can't <laughs> find them in Manhattan. Um, but it's, it's a really smart, funny, farcy sort of story about a guy who has just been bamboozled by the markets and by the country and all of the stuff that we live in. And he decides maybe he should sell pot. Mm. Sounds good. Cause that sounds like a great idea. It, yeah. I mean, economically viable. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I was reading something about Colorado and, um, their newfound pot legalization <laughs> that like a lot of, uh, pot dealers like are still in business and doing better business because they've just like slashed the prices below yeah below what dispensaries so the free market is alive and well (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so uh what give give me your recommendation for i'm recommending uh 2 a.m at the cat's pajamas by um marie helen bartino um it's an amazing sort of it's a short like maybe 220 page like sort of very wonderful kaleidoscopic view of this small town but it concerns mostly um a nine-year-old girl who wants to be a jazz singer and um her fourth grade teacher third or fourth grade teacher um who is sort of has been invited to a dinner party and the entire uh, thing takes place in the course of like 16 hours and starts at like 8 a.m. that morning and goes until like 3 or 4 a.m. that night. Nice. And uh, one of the real big joys of the book is that you get 
not just their perspectives, but like sometimes it's the dog's perspective. Sometimes it's the mailman. Sometimes it's the club owner. And it really keeps this story beautiful and light and airy. And it's got some very strange magical realism in it that I still am like starting to parse out. But I actually listened to it and it's a good listen. But it was so good that I have now bought another print copy and I'm going to probably read it again. Nice. So a testament right there yeah and it's a beautiful cover oh it's shiny right I've yeah, seen it. it's, yeah it's got a teal and black sort of got that old uh, stardust cocktail culture going on on it nice thank you for listening that'll be the thing yeah yeah thanks so much for we'll tuning see, in we'll see you again soon see you in next week which we're going to be talking about uh the magicians and uh, the southern reach trilogy so love grossman and jeff, jeff vandermeer. vandermeer yeah so read six books yeah quick and uh, we'll we'll see you in a couple of days. Yeah.